This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, this is Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. My name is Chris Gillespie. I'll be your host for this episode. You may know my guest today from her best-selling Angelology series, her critically acclaimed memoirs, or from her work as the horror columnist for the New York Times Book Review. She has a terrific new novel out this summer entitled The Puzzle Master. Here it is, which is currently available at your local Barnes & Noble store and online at bn.com. Please join me in offering a big port over welcome to Danielle Trussoni. Hi, thank you, Chris. It's really great to be here. How are you doing? I am doing very well. As one might imagine by the fact that I'm holding a copy of the book right now, I was fortunate enough to get to read an advanced copy of The Puzzle Master, which for the audience is a century-spanning psychological thriller that follows an expert puzzle maker named Mike Brink as he is thrust into an ancient mystery where reality and the supernatural collide and the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. Angie Kim, author of Miracle Creek, describes this book as the Da Vinci Code meets the silent patient, plus a sprinkle of Stephen King. That's a pretty hard logline to to beat, Danielle. Yeah, I know. It's a lot to live up to. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, all of those influences, especially, you know, the Stephen King and Dan Brown, they seem very different, right? They seem like very different types of influences. But I do think that quote is correct in that they are there is a sort of um, marriage of them in the book. There's a lot of what one would think of as a thriller sort of momentum. It's very fast paced, I think. But yet I'm fascinated with the sorts of shades of the occult. I don't know if I'd necessarily call it horror, but, you know, a sort of interest in the dark side of things and some mysticism. So those two things really do come together in the book. So I think that's a great quote for you to have pulled out. I agree. Uh, having read the book, I do think it is kind of, it exists sort of in the the center of the, if Dan Brown's on one side and Stephen King's on the other, There, it does feel like it is kind of like in the, the middle area of that particular Venn, Venn diagram. I have so many things I want to ask you about having read the book. And I think listeners or the viewers are going to be listening to this interview and being like, this is, we're talking about the same book here, but (laughs) there's so many things uh, that I wanted to touch upon that are part of the story and and make it really interesting to read because it really is sort of like a, maybe I was just thinking of this because kind of of like the cover of the book, but it's sort of like a kaleidoscope, I think, of a, a psychological thriller where there's so many different things happening and turning, like plots turning and different shades of, like you said. And there's so many topics that you touch on and incorporate into the story, like you said, ranging from spirituality to psychology to crime and then technology. And I, of course, as we're talking, I don't want to give too much away about the novel, but two of the main technologies that you touch on in this book are quantum computing and artificial intelligence. And before we begin talking about the book proper, when you were writing this, did you have any idea that you'd be releasing at a time when artificial intelligence would be trending and dominating the news in a way that it really hasn't before? I had absolutely no idea. And this is also like, just to be really clear, not a sci-fi novel, right? Like I think science fiction has been dealing with those subjects for a very long time. And this is very much a human novel about people. I have been fascinated with those subjects for quite a while, even though they haven't been trending and, and it hasn't been out there. 
I've been re- doing a lot of reading and research about them. And so I wanted to find a way to bring those topics into a story where it wasn't science fiction, where it felt very realistic, that we learn about what those things are and what they mean for our world through human behavior, um, which I think is kind of hard to imagine, especially if you're, you know, if you're talking about the present moment and not 75 years from now, for example. So yeah, to answer your question, no, I had no inkling that we would be talking about AI as much much as we are right now. Right. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting because it, right, this book is not science fiction. It's not really classified as sci-fi. Maybe that speaks to just our present moment that those things that would have been staples of sci-fi, you know, 20, certainly 50 years ago, I read it now in a book. I'm like, yeah, this feels, this is a grounded realistic novel right now. That could totally happen. (laughs) Absolutely. Not that far out of the the, uh, realm of possibility, I suppose, but I kind of wanted to ask you more about that because, you know, like you said, you're interested in the occult. Uh, There's also a lot of history, I think, that comes up in your work of, you know, European history. You know, in my mind, those things, I don't necessarily jump from those to like new and emerging technologies. So as someone who likes the darker side of things or is more into like gothic horror and likes writing in that vein like what exactly about these new technologies do you think like inspires you or kind of gets your imagination going well first of all i just want to take a little step back and just frame it so that it doesn't sound like this like a whole big hodgepodge of stuff thrown together what connects those things really i think is the character of mike brink who is the hero of the book so the book is as you know you said the puzzle master and it's about an ingenious puzzle constructor a man named mike brink who had a traumatic brain injury when he was in high school that altered the nature of his brain people feel like you know what is this possible that people could have an injury and that their brain changes in a way that allows them to develop a special talent, but they, but they can, and they do, and it's called savant syndrome. So this character has the capacity to do a lot of things, right? And he allowed me by having this character that can move through a novel or through situations, and he sees the world very differently from the way that we do, right? He can enter a room and he'll see hundred equations in the setup of the arrangement of the geometry of the space, things that, or he'll see codes, things that we can't see. And so that character opened up the possibility for me to make a, a thriller that allows me to bring in all those elements that you mentioned, right? So he encounters a woman, her name is Jess Price, and she's drawn a mysterious puzzle that um, nobody can understand. You know, she's not speaking about it. So she scribbles his name on the back of this puzzle and her psychiatrist brings him to an upstate New York prison where he begins to solve this puzzle. And it's that puzzle that unravels the elements that you mentioned. There's the Gothic element, which the puzzle was originally constructed in the 13th century by a Jewish mystic who, you know, there's a real life Jewish mystic that I've based my research on. And then it takes us to sort of 19th century Prague, where a lot of those Gothic elements come out. And then, as you said, that puzzle moves us into a sort of future element. The puzzle connects the past with the future. And it creates a thread through the book that connects it all together. And what it really did was allow me to explore concepts and ideas that I really was interested in. 
you know, one of them is mysticism and the history of religion and the way that religion um, has inspired us throughout history and also given people a certain quest, right? Like there's a quest in this book. One of the characters is on a quest for immortality and, you know, is trying desperately to find ways to outlive the body. And then that connects with the religious elements and also then the quantum computing and and the AI element that you mentioned. So, I mean, I just sort of like wrap that whole thing up, but it all goes back to that one character, right? Mike Brink, who, because he has these special abilities that seem a little bit almost like a superpower, right? Throughout the book, it allows us to go into these elements and it feels, I think, hopefully when you enter those scenes that it makes sense. Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense. I mean, I think you uh, do a wonderful job of, you know, letting us step inside the mind of Mike Brink and kind of uh, seeing how not only the puzzles that are in the story that he's interacting with, but also how he specifically is seeing the puzzles and analyzing them and how they form in his mind. Speaking of Mike Brink, because I am really interested in the condition that he has that is referenced throughout the book, which is um, sudden acquired savant syndrome. How did this come onto your radar? Did you like, I'm so curious about like what kind of research that you found and like what kind of documented cases of this, is it a rare thing? I'm assuming it must be pretty rare. Totally rare. I think 75 reported cases in the world, (laughs) but the people who have this condition, acquired savant syndrome, have really been very vocal about it, right? And there's been, you know, a lot of, a few memoirs written about it, lots of scientific studies done about it. And, you know, what it is, is that something happens in the brain, usually a kind of injury, and a person can develop skills that they didn't have before. Um, I mean, that's the most baseline explanation of what this is. And for some people, I read a memoir about a guy who had a traumatic brain injury, and he began suddenly to, he developed a capacity with art that he didn't have before. He could make these amazing drawings that he never could do before. Other people develop, you know, an eidetic or sort of um, photographic memory where they can, you know, read a book and remember every page, right? It's just astonishing. Other people develop a facility with foreign languages and can suddenly speak languages that they didn't know they knew. And, you know, these experiences are totally fascinating. And as soon as I came across this, I was like, I was in, I started doing tons of research. I found there was um, one specific researcher who worked with, I think his name was Kim Peek, the man who was the, the, the guy who Rain Man was based on. This researcher, I read a lot of his work and I learned everything I could about it because, as I said earlier, a character like this allows a writer with like a big imagination or who who wants to go into a lot of places, the ability to do that without doing something like let's create create a superhero or let's create, you know, this unbelievable fantasy situation. Because first and foremost, the puzzle master is a very grounded feeling. Like all of the things that happen, I think I create a sort of realistic setting or case for them so that when something kind of unbelievable happens or, you know, what is described as supernatural, but in Mike Brink's point of view, isn't maybe necessarily supernatural. It may be something arising from his brain. It can be explained in an interesting way. And when you describe it like that, I think about how, because in the book, you know, Mike Brink, it has these abilities, has these gifts, but they're not always 
a welcome gift or a happy gift to have. They actually kind of burden him quite a bit, which actually kind of, you know, we're talking about horror or the occult, like that kind of almost feels like a shade of that where it's, you have these, you know, you get this gift, but all of a sudden it's not really all that it, it's cracked up to be. And it kind of haunts him and burdens him in a way, in, in a sort of way. Right. Yeah, completely. I mean, Mike Brink was a pretty average guy living a pretty average life. He was, you know, when this happened to him, he was 17. He was on his football, high school football team. He was really good. He hoped to get a scholarship to go to college. And he's hit in a big moment of his, you know, playing football and has this traumatic brain injury. What really interested me about him and about giving a character this condition was the ability to compare and contrast who was he before and how has he changed after. And also, you know, it's a question that I find fascinating is what is the burden of talent or, you know, what he's been given this extraordinary talent. He's famous by the time, you know, we meet him as readers. He is a puzzle constructor for the New York Times and he's won all these, you know, championships and puzzle constructing and like memory games and so on. But there's a side to having that ability that really haunts him while he can easily interact with, you know, math puzzles and and games and that sort of thing. He has a hard time relating to people and he works very hard at um, making connections with people, but it's never easy. And I mean, even us normal people have that that problem, right? Um, So I find that that element of his personality is for me, the most relatable part of him is like understanding that, you know, you might be good at one thing, but this other side of your personality is, is making things hard for you. Right. He had, you know, a vision of his life that was going to go one way, you know, when he's a football star and he has, he thinks he's, he thinks he knows where he's going. Then he ends up in a totally different spot doing something completely different. And I was also thinking, you know, talking about how important it is to kind of have the novel be grounded and kind of in the present moment, sort of something that I thought was really interesting. I think maybe this might be one of the first novels that I've encountered that does this, but you like refer to the COVID-19 pandemic as like a recent moment of like actual history, which I thought was really interesting because I think we're kind of at this strange moment where in, you know, in literature, you know, entertainment, television, movies, whatnot, it doesn't really seem like there's a clear consensus of how do we address COVID-19 is something that's in our recent past because so many narratives, it seems like, are happy to just exist in a world that COVID-19 never happened. But of course, in our world, it did. And it changed so many things, a lot of things that we're still grappling with. So I was wondering, like, was that a specific choice on your part where you're like, I need this to be as totally grounded. COVID-19 is going to be a part of this. Or was part of you like, eh, I could probably, I don't have to mention it, right? Like no one I could just get away with not mentioning it. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I think I could have not mentioned it, but it was set. It's June 9th, 2022 is the date that this action happens. And it happens over the course of maybe a day and a half or two days. Not very long. It's like short amount of time. And everything else is very realistic. So I did. It's not a huge part of the book. You know, masks aren't really involved in nothing like that. You know, there's not any any discussion about it. But there is one scene where he shows a COVID vaccination card, right? Like 
And it's acknowledged that it happened. You know, you hit on it exactly. Like making this feel grounded and real for that time period was very important to me. I think that if you ask your reader to suspend disbelief for certain things in a book, it's really important to have the realistic elements 100% right. Right. And I imagine you were you were writing this probably a few years ago. Were you writing this like during lockdown? I started this in 2020. Yeah, I was writing this during lockdown. It seemed like you did a good job of kind of imagining our post-COVID world where it's... Because <laughs> as in lockdown, I mean, it felt like, oh my God, this huge thing, it's affecting everything. Like we can't escape it. And now, you know, three years down the road, it's kind of like, oh... Uh, that's that was nothing like that's COVID. COVID's around, but uh, oh yeah, COVID. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I so I started it in 2020, but I didn't finish it until like the last pass and the last edits were only about six months ago. So I was constantly, you know, uh, rejiggering how it, the tone and how it feels. Yeah, I'm glad that you feel that way, though. I would like it to be a book that people can read anytime, right? And yeah. you know, a reference to COVID is maybe you know this for us now the same as a reference to the flu pandemic, the Spanish flu, you know, a hundred years ago, like you just feel like it's a part of history. It's there, it happened, but it's not a major player in the book. Exactly. And I think that balance was really important and really interesting. Cause like I said, I think this is probably one of certainly in the first batch of novels to kind of be in that moment in time and having a chance to do that. But I kind of honed in on the COVID-19 thing specifically, cause I'm wondering and thinking about the pandemic and lockdown there's definitely a connection between the lockdown and puzzles. You know, puzzle sales went through the roof. People were at home doing all kinds of puzzles. So were you solving a ton of puzzles during lockdown? Like, was that kind of how you got into the puzzle zone? So I was a complete Wordle addict. I'll just have I admit. And spelling bee, right? I love both of them. And I also do crosswords. I'm not very good at them. You know, I'm not, I'm not a puzzle master. I'm not Mike Brink um, for sure, but I was doing them. And also it made me think about um, narrative too, right? You know, a puzzle for me, especially when you're writing a mystery, right? This book is a, is a thriller and a mystery. And there's a big question at the beginning and the whole process of reading and the whole process of, of this narrative is putting together pieces of narrative to get a solution. And it struck me how similar that is to solving puzzles. That part of it fascinated me. And I think that's one of the earliest concepts I had of the book is like really wanting to create the feeling of solving a puzzle when you're reading the book. And I wondered why more people hadn't done that. <laughs> I kind of started poking around like, has anyone written about puzzle constructing and narrative and thrillers? And, and why aren't those things, you know, sort of conflated more often? Thinking about puzzles in that way, do you think that that changed you as a writer or the way that you approach the writing process when you start thinking of it in that kind of manner? That's so interesting. What a great question. Because the history of my work, you know, this is my sixth book. I didn't start off thinking about writing that way, right? My first book was a memoir and it was really about character, completely about character and emotion. In that memoir, it was a, a memoir about my relationship with my father. And then my first novel was much more about that connection between putting together pieces and, and a sort of mystery. And this one, I think, you know, fast forward a couple more books, but this one was the first book where I really clarified 
narratively and plot-wise what I wanted to do. And it was very much influenced by puzzle constructing. I also get very frustrated solving puzzles. I don't know if you do, but like if I can't get it and I can't figure it out, it just drives me totally crazy. And so I wanted to construct a novel that both sort of led readers through it and posed questions and mysteries, but was not so frustrating that people would not keep reading, right? So while there are actually some puzzles in the book, um, I worked with some puzzle constructors to make them. There's also the narrative workaround, right? Like if you don't solve it, then you can just move on and keep reading and it's enjoyable. So yeah, those two things are very influential to me now, especially since I'm going to keep writing this series. I think to that point, there was a quote that I pulled from the book. I don't know if it's something that Mike Brink says or thinks, or if it's something that just the narration says, uh, but it was a quote that stood out to me. It says, quote, puzzles should challenge, but not frustrate, be elusive, but not obscure. Most importantly, puzzles should create a sense of satisfaction as each clue is cracked. How that sounds like a pretty succinct kind of perfect description of puzzles, but also to your point, kind of novel writing, I would imagine. Did that take a long time for you to get to that realization about puzzles and to define it in that way? Because it's kind of brilliant the way that you describe it right there. I love that you pulled that quote out because that when I wrote that, I was writing about my process of writing. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I'm on the same wave. Right, we're on the same wave. Like <laughs> but I've had some other writers who have read the book say to me, oh, wow, you know what I, I connected with most about this book was that it does feel like the obsessive need to write and the obsessive need, I guess, for some people to read books that create that kind of pleasure of a challenge. And then there's this sort of rush of like, oh my God, what does that mean? And, you know, as a writer, that happens to me every day, writing, trying to figure out the next scene, trying to figure out how the pieces go together, but also as a reader, although readers get to go through it in like three or four hours and it takes me a year or two. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that feeling is is wonderful and i don't think i would trade it for anything the how difficult you know the frustration of it but also the pleasure of it of finding solutions and creating answers to puzzles so something else that i was thinking about you know in that same vein was that if you're cuz i think something about puzzles or maybe it's just kind of part of the human psychology of when we solve a puzzle it's like we have this kind of hindsight bias where it's like, well, that was inevitable the entire time. If this right, of was course. The only, of course. <laughs> like, when, you know, talking about Wordle, when you get the, guess the Wordle word in five guesses, you're like, well, obviously. It was. I know. I'm like, what? Why didn't yeah. I see that immediately? <laughs> of course. That was the only word it could be. Why did I do that <laughs> for my first pick? But as that relates to writing, is it possible to kind of cultivate that sense of, crafting the reader experience in a way where they're like they're going to be kind of confused while they're going through this but when it's all over they'll be like oh i should have that was all in front of me because i imagine that must be a fine line to walk between being too you know you risk being heavy-handed and really laying out the clues but then you also risk not having enough connective tissue where it's just kind of they don't see the pattern at all so like how do you manage that Totally. I think in, you know, in a mystery that is more like a whodunit where the clues are all there for the reader to pick up on and guess the solution, that's one thing. And then there's more, you know, novels where the the writer um, doesn't really lay out those clues so that you could figure it out. I think there are kind of two tracks. 
that a writer can choose to go on. This book is definitely one where you're not going to guess the ending. I don't think. I mean, there are elements of the sort of solution or the end of the book throughout. And once you read it, I think you're like, oh, that could happen. But it's not something that you're going to figure out on your own. And I know we're not going to give any spoilers away, but I tend to love books that surprise me. I like getting to the end of a novel and closing it and my jaw is just like dropped open. Like, did that really just happen? That's my favorite kind of of novel. I'm a reader who doesn't mind a twist right at the end. Um, I know some people find that, you know, too much and it's like excruciating because you can't get any more information, but that's the kind of reader I am. And you just mentioned that you had been working with some actual real life puzzle masters while you were researching this book. I was wondering if you could talk about that experience at all. Sure. So I, when I realized that I was going to have a puzzle master as my main character, I was like, oh no, (laughs) that's not me. I am not a puzzle master. Um, I'm actually even um, ridiculously bad at math. I knew I needed help. And I talked to a friend of mine who knew Will Shorts. Will Shorts, for those of you who don't know, is an actual puzzle master. He is the editor of the New York Times Games page, and he has a show on NPR. And he very graciously invited me to his home where he walked me through his puzzle library and allowed me to ask him a bunch of questions. I was so curious and I had so many questions about his his path from being where he came from and how he came to this job and, and what his life was like. And then I got to look, sort of poke through his puzzle library and see like these amazing antique puzzles that, you know, that he has a copy of the very first crossword book ever published. Like he just, it was really, really fascinating. That was a huge, huge part of getting down this character and understanding what this character was about and how he would see the world. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, he's, I've seen his illustration on, you know, the crossword puzzle books at the, you know, in stores or whatnot. He's like the guy that's like, if you're, you know, writing a a book or trying to develop a character who's a musician, that's like going like, oh, I'm going to go hang out with Paul McCartney for a day and see. (laughs) That's amazing. Did he give you any like insider tips or tricks for how to better solve Wordle, you know, puzzles or crossword puzzles or anything like that? Did he give you like this kind of brilliant piece of insight into like, well, if you want to know the the secret code that all of us puzzle makers put into our puzzles, you got to do this. No, he's not going to tell me that. No, I don't think. True. But also his brain is working on, you know, such a different plane than mine. I remember he was talking about puzzle solving and puzzle constructing. And the way he was talking about it, it was interesting because I had never conceptualized puzzles in that way, right? And this is something that he's been doing his entire life. He created own field of study at his university. They like let him make a degree in puzzles. Like it was the first one, I think, ever. And so he's been thinking in that way for as long as he's been, you know, doing, you know, an adult. But what was great, what really helped me, it was the insight into how Mike Brink as a character would see the world, right? Because it is very different than the way that I see the world. Mike Brink, as a result of this injury, has synesthesia, which is when, you know, the senses combine. So one might hear a sound and see a color or, you know, language produces different effects for people with synesthesia. 
And that is a sort of key into Mike Brink's consciousness and the way he sees the world. And it brings the character, I think, really close to him and allows that character to go through a kind of emotional journey. Because what was interesting for me about Mike as a character is that he does have this kind of rarefied way of being in the world, but then he meets the character in the prison who drew the puzzle and everything derails, like everything that he thought he had under control, he loses control and it becomes a very emotional roller coaster for him. What do you think is it is about human nature that makes puzzles so like enduring and just popular like through because we've always had puzzles, right? Like almost as long, probably not as long as we've had, you know, books or stories like that, but probably somewhat pretty close. Like what exactly do you think it is about puzzles that it just is something that's so close to humanity? I think that it, you know, that puzzles mirror our condition here. We don't know why we're here, <laughs> right? Right. We don't know how we got here, where we're going, why. We don't have any of the big questions answered. Mm. And so our existence, our very existence, the biggest questions for us are mysteries and our puzzles. And putting together pieces of a concrete puzzle, whether it's a mathematical puzzle or a crossword or you know, there are there are very ancient puzzles, right? Some of the earliest records of humanity are, are things that people are drawings that people think could be puzzles. All of that, I think, points to humanity's need to figure it out. And if we can simulate some sort of sense of figuring our stuff out here, like figuring out what's going on, why we're here. And if we can do that in a small way for ourselves every day, whether that's through Wordle or whether that's through reading a mystery novel or a thriller that gives us really concrete answers and makes us feel like we're in control of that information, I think that it helps us explain things. I really do. And I think that it creates a lot of positive mental health relief for people in the world. And maybe that's why it was you know, so popular during COVID, right? During the lockdown, because you can create a sense of control out of chaos. And I think there's a passage where Mike Brink actually says that, like, you know, that's what the, the real pleasure for him in solving puzzles is, is taking control. It's like finishing, you know, a really difficult sequence of things and 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 having success. Right. But there, it's this one tiny little example, microcosm, where we have control, uh, but also one of the few instances where we also have a problem that then we get a resolution for like we eventually are able to have the pieces together we finish there's a tangible resolution that we obviously do not get in <laughs> real life or our general you know existence as humans um but that does tie into you know my next question sort of about this concept of the god puzzle which i understand was a fictional device that you had created for the novel but i understand that it has kind of roots or origins in something that is actually in kind of religious history? Yeah. So the God puzzle is the puzzle that I mentioned earlier that is that this woman in the prison draws, right? Mm -hmm. As it turns out, it's not her invention. She is copying something that she found at the scene of the crime for which she's in prison. As we move through the book, there's a kind of excavation going on, like bringing us closer and closer and closer to the origin of this this ancient puzzle. And it turns out in the book that it was 
created by a 13th century Jewish mystic named Abulafia. Okay, so now this is a real guy. Abulafia is a 13th century Jewish mystic, and he did create these incredibly interesting circular prayer. They look like mandalas almost. They're like these circular Mm -hmm. prayers. And I was doing research about different puzzles and different events of Jewish mysticism. And I came across these puzzles. There's There's an online database for the British Library in the UK. And if you go and if you just do a search, Abu Lafia British Library prayer circles, it will bring you into a place where you can actually page through electronically this manuscript. And I saw them and I was like, this, this is so intriguing and so interesting um, that I need to use this in my book. So the puzzle is really based on those, on those circular puzzles that Abu Lafia drew. And the way that it's sort of used as a device or as you know, the mystery in the book is that it's carried through history. The um, puzzle is we first find it as readers in the 19th century in Prague. And this is a totally different element that I haven't brought up yet, but there is a section in in 19th century Prague where we sort of see where this puzzle came from and how it ended up getting to this woman who's in the prison. Yeah, that's a long way to just sort of give you like an overview of, of the puzzle. Oh, and one more thing, I had a puzzle constructor actually draw the puzzle that you see in the book. So that's a completely new reproduction. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Fortunately, you uh, do not force the reader to have to imagine what these, you know, some of these puzzles look like. You actually have the illustrations of the puzzles actually in aligned with the text and everything, which is really great. Going off of the, you know, the, there's the section that is set back in 19th century Prague, 18th century yeah. Prague. 19. 19. There's also that section kind of is dealing with kind of gets more involved with sort of the spookier more occult side of the story which kind of uh heavily focuses around a porcelain doll named violaine 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 i was thinking about this because it is unsettling certainly and i was wondering if you are someone that is you know finds porcelain dolls unsettling are you do you like them are you afraid of them what was kind of your thought process for um getting that element into the story so the answer is yes to both (laughs) (laughs) i like them and they terrify me i kind of you know i think that that's the 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 vein that i really like to explore in all of my books like what is that thing that fascinates me and terrifies me at the same time and that i and i why do i like it like why do i like to feel that frisson you know when i'm reading and why does that draw me in But the idea for having a porcelain doll was something that I wanted to have in a book for years. My great-grandmother actually left me a porcelain doll. And yeah, I can send you a picture if you want to put it in your show notes. It's a very interesting uh, looking doll. It's it's quite similar to uh, the doll that I describe in the book. And so I think that it's been sort of living at the back of my mind. I also think that uh, the history of porcelain, which I go into a little bit in the book, is fascinating. Not many people know that, you know, that porcelain cup that you might have sort of sitting around in your once upon a time was more would have been more valuable than gold. Porcelain was a technology that came somewhat late to Europe. It was, you know, obviously in China first and and European royalty and nobility desperately wanted to know how to make porcelain. So it was like, 
you know, once upon a time, it was really this very precious thing. So anyway, I'm getting into the minutia of it. The porcelain doll element was really a fascinating element for me. And I did a lot of research and ended up cutting. A lot of writers do this, but I ended up cutting like, you know, pages and pages and pages of that research from the final book. Porcelain dolls are, I guess, just kind of dolls in general. A lot of like they, I think, have a pretty, you know, long track record in you know, the horror genre, I think it, cause it's rooted in some actual phobia, I would think. But why do you think people are so afraid or kind of unsettled by these little things that look like little children? Well, there's lots of theories about that, but I think that things that look like us, that simulate us, but are not us are creepy, mm-hmm. right? Like I think this is partially why AI terrifies people as well. I mean, it doesn't look physically like us, but it can do things that we can do. Right. And it makes us wonder, like, are we really unique? Or like, are we, why are we here? And, you know, maybe we're AI, you know, or, you know, who knows, right? Like it gets you thinking about your place in the universe and your position in, you know, in relationship to those things. With porcelain dolls, I think there's especially something creepy for for women and like the idea of motherhood. And like, for me, it, you know, sort of represents in some ways, both the frightening side of motherhood, but also the attractive side of motherhood that, you know, when you're a child, when you're a little girl and you get dolls, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're modeling what motherhood is, but at the same time, it's really terrifying and I don't know. I think that that there's something about motherhood and porcelain dolls that's very scary. Well, I think this conversation has been fascinating, and I'm I am I'm not surprised that it has been because the Puzzle Master you have so many different threads in it, and I mean it's so cool because how often do you get to read a you know thriller type novel where you also get to you know learn about the history of porcelain or learn about the you know, craft of puzzle making, like it's very thoughtful and a very, you know, intelligent thriller, which I think is what makes this book really special. And I was wondering, I think you may have alluded to a little bit earlier, but without telegraphing how the puzzle master may or may not end, might we expect to see Mike Brink again someday? So yes, I am writing right this minute, actually not this minute, but earlier today I was working on it. There will be a sequel. Um, It's called The Puzzle Box, and it's Mike Brink again. He's called to Japan this Ah. time to open a 19th century wooden puzzle box that the emperor of Japan hid something extremely important in, and then nobody has been able to open it since. And as soon as he opens it, lots of interesting and crazy stuff happens. Because it's a Daniel Trisoni novel, right? So something crazy has to happen. (laughs) Are you, I understand that you, you know, you do a lot of traveling for your research. So have you been to Japan? Are you going to? No, I just went. Yeah, I just Just went. I just got back. Well, it's about a month now. Um, I was there and I went to all of the locations that are in the book. So it's set mostly in Tokyo and Kyoto, but there are scenes in Hakone too, which is up in the mountains. And I went and I saw actual puzzle box. I went boxes. I went to a puzzle box museum and learned how they're made. Um, I could hold one and like open it. It was really completely fascinating. That's awesome that uh, I think you've really cracked a pretty, you cracked the code for uh, how to have these really cool travel adventures. If you're like, well, Mike Brink has to go to Japan. So 
I sort of have to I go. I have to go too. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Let's all go. <laughs> Maybe Mike Brink will go to Hawaii someday or it's hopefully. Yeah. I hope he wants to go to Egypt. Maybe he needs to go to Egypt or I don't know. We can France. I, I would imagine that they have puzzles in both those places, probably very old they, puzzles, right? They must. <laughs> Well, on that note, Danielle, you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Once again, the book that we're talking about is The Puzzle Master. It's available in hardcover and ebook and audiobook now at Barnes and Noble and BN.com. Like I said, if you're looking for a new page-turning summer blockbuster that's complex and philosophical and makes you think and provokes thought, you do not want to miss this one because it starts like it sounds like it's the start of something very exciting. Um, both for us as readers and also for Danielle here. So Danielle, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great rest of your summer. Thank you, Chris. And thanks to Barnes and Noble for having me on. This has really been a pleasure. So we'll see you next time uh, whenever the puzzle box comes out, right? It's coming out next September already. Perfect. I'll mark my calendar. Sounds good. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and the associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am joined by Ivy Pakoda, author of books you're going to remember like Visitation Street, These Women, and now her fast-paced, unrelenting new book, Sing Her Down. This book grabbed me from page one and didn't let me go until the very end. I'm actually not sure if it has let me go yet. I'm still definitely thinking about these characters, these women, the lives that they lived. So thank you so much, Ivy, for being with us today. Oh my God, this is such a pleasure. Where do you even start with this book? There's so much that happens. These characters are incredible. I really was on board from the first moment that we meet these women because they really are something special. But I'd love to have you start by just sort of giving us a rundown of the premise of Sing Her Down because so much happens in this book. On the surface, it is a story about two women, Dios uh, and Florida, who were incarcerated leading up to COVID, and both of them received compassionate release due to overcrowding at the start of the pandemic, which is something that happened to a lot of prisoners. They are in Arizona, and they are quarantined in a motel, which happened uh, when someone couldn't provide a shelter and home uh, place. They break quarantine, and they embark on a wild ride through Los Angeles, uh, one pursuing the other with an increasingly more deadly game plan. It takes place or the book unfolds over the four days of the George Floyd protests, which were a surreal time within the pandemic, which was surreal in and of itself. And it's sort of a book about these two women's uh, fixation on each other. It's a book about female violence, female rage, and what women are actually capable of and what we pretend that they are not capable of. In many ways, they felt like Killing Eve meets Thelma and Louise set in 2020 when we were all so unsure of our own lives and where we sort of fit into this grand scheme. I was very much transported back to 2020 reading this in all the ways that I think I needed to be in order to sort of understand where these women were. It's funny, um, while I was writing it, I was told, you know, multiple times, not by anyone involved in the publication of the book, but by, you know, other people, especially the people who worked in Hollywood, which is where I live, I live in Los Angeles, that no one wanted to read about the pandemic. And I just thought that was silly because, you know, it's happening. And it's so great to hear you say that, like that this takes you back and allows you to parse and make sense of it, because I think it is a really important thing to uh, include in our literature and our art, because I think it changed a lot of people and it changed a lot of literature and art. 
And we can't, I mean, we are, in many ways, we're still living it. We're still living with these ripples, these ramifications that all are, all of our lives changed during this time. And one of the ways we're able to sort of engage with that in a way that's meaningful and understandable is by reading literature about it and writing literature about it. We can't engage with something just through having it exist and trying to move forward past it. I think a lot of people are like, I'm ready to be done with it. I'm ready to move on. And in many ways, of course, that's true as well. We all need that like escapism piece. But I think we need to be able to engage with it a little bit more actively to move beyond it. Absolutely. I really want to start off by talking about these characters, because this book does not work without these women that we are going on this adventure with. And we wouldn't be able to sort of understand all these things without these incredible characters that you've given us. When you were starting to write this book, was there someone in particular whose voice came to you first? Dios's voice came to me first. She opened the initial, in the initial version of the book, there's now another character named Case who sort of functions as a Greek chorus or a sort of narrator um, in the Western style, if you will. She was much later. Um, the book initially opened with Dios talking. She's talking to someone in prison who turns out to be Florida. They're both in prison. And her voice, uh, it came to me first, but it turned out to be uh, unsustainable over long periods of time. One of the things I like best about Dios's character is we don't know too, too much about her. Um, we know enough, but we, she doesn't really justify or explain her actions too much. And having too much of her voice was problematic because it was making me want to give an explanation for why she was the way she was and why she did the things she did. So her voice opens the book. She's talking to Florida. She's describing her version of whom she thinks Florida is. Yeah, so her voice definitely kicked it off. And then it really became Florida's story. Being able to sort of enter into this through Florida's eyes was so eye-opening. It really allowed the reader to engage and to be a part of that story so much more easily because her voice was so much more accessible. Dios's voice, I loved reading, but she exists sort of in this like incredibly powerful figure that's just a little bit off to the side and a little bit removed. And having her sort of be that forefront figure might have almost been overwhelming, I think, too. It was. It was overwhelming to the story. And then when I thought about it logically, she doesn't, couldn't possibly talk like that all the time. And so she's saving it for these moments when she's interacting with Florida and other people, trying to call them out for being weak or not acknowledging the darkness or the violence within them. But, you know, overall, she probably doesn't talk like that a lot. But the only times I care about her is when she is saying those things. So I really toned it down. And it is a bit March. Like, I'm not going to lie. She was loosely based on the judge character in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And he's like over the top. You know, it's a lot. And there's too much of him. I did alienate a whole bunch of people with this book who are like, it's too violent. More on that later. Um, I don't (laughs) think it's enough because, you know, not that it's not violent, but I just feel like, well, that's another topic. I wanted to make sure that she was manageable and not alienating and not like telling the story and like forcing it home too much. And that also helps you connect, I think, a little bit with Florida because she's experiencing these moments of Dios just the same as we are, that she can't ever tell where Dios is coming from. Sometimes literally, like physically, she doesn't know how this woman just keeps appearing and neither do we. Those moments that we get to sort of have those realizations along with her really, really make everything feel so much more real and like you're right there in it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, 
Florida, so I should probably explain, Florida is a rich girl who has, through a series of um, mistakes or choices, let's say, wound up in prison. Um, and so she comes from an affluent background. Dios is working class, half Latina woman from Queens who sort of uh, jumped up in the world because she's very smart and got a scholarship to a prep school and then a scholarship to college. So while she is perhaps Florida's intellectual superior and educated superior, she comes from a different class system. So they're sort of at odds with each other and they come from very different backgrounds, but sort of wound up in the same place. I mean, none of them are ever right or wrong, or maybe they're always right or always wrong. It's one of those moments where you just can never, from one decision to the next, one page to the next, you are like staring going, oh, oh, what is going to, like, it never lets up on that feeling of what is going to happen next. And then you add in this character, Lobos, of the detective that's sort of chasing them. And it really is like a suspenseful, not in your stomach that whole time. Well, Dio sure thinks she's right. And that's what I kind of liked about her. And that was like a fun character to write. She has her own moral code and she has her own sort of fixed ideas about, you know, she's kind of like a, an end games day, a, a teleologist. Like she's just like playing this end game. That's not going to work out, uh, I don't think. But she is completely driven to that. So it was kind of fun to write somebody where there was no gray area. I mean, not for her. Yeah, she really exists in her vision of she's always right. And Florida, a lot of the time, I think, exists in a world where she's always wrong. Right. Or wronged that everything is sort of happening to her and around her. And she doesn't feel like she has a lot of agency in her own existence, even though I think there's probably a lot more agency there than she's willing to admit. Oh, sure. I mean, she's got tons of agency in it. But yeah, she feels wronged. She feels like the world's mistreating her, or maybe she's just saying those things, you know? She just can't sort of confront what she's done and what I think is in her true nature. So, you know, she allows herself to have excuses made for her, at least as far as Dios and the woman who created her are concerned. (laughs) But maybe, um, maybe she has, you know, been wronged by the system. I don't know. And then there's Lobos, the detective who is in many ways also a sort of surrogate for the reader because she's finding out a lot of things as, as we're going along just as well. But she has her own incredibly complicated and timely feeling issues that she is facing in her own life. She's a surrogate for the reader in several ways. So thank you for saying that phrase. So what I kind of wanted to articulate with Florida and Dios is like they have this anger in them and it comes out sideways and it comes out sort of non-constructively and they both feel for various reasons that they've been um, you know, disenfranchised or mistreated. And that's not why they're violent, but they've been through a bunch of things. I don't ever want to justify their violence. That's the whole point of the exercise. But if you cannot identify with them, um, I present Lobos. Now, I think there are points of identification for everybody in Dios in Florida, especially because they come from pretty reasonable backgrounds, you know, and their life experiences were not like all that different from lots of people who would pick up this book and read it. I'm saying there are lots of people out there who are different than they are. But like a woman reading this book, I hope can find one thing in either one of those women that they could say, oh, yeah, that's me. If you cannot do that, if you're not willing to identify with violent criminals uh, and just think just by virtue of their violence that they are so far outside of your sphere of experience, I present Lobos. She's a detective. And she has suffered so many things that every woman suffers in the everyday, just discrimination at work, teasing that's really emotionally abusive at work. She has a husband who is emotionally abusive and turned physically abusive, and he is on the warpath uh, to uh, ruin her. And But what I wanted in her character is to create sort of a pyramid of 
things that everyone can see. Like, maybe you have a great marriage and nothing's ever bad has happened to you with someone you've dated. And I'm kudos to you. If you have been a woman in the workplace, you have suffered something that uh, Lobos has suffered and that seeds rage within you. We are told as women that we just cannot like question or express or complain when every little thing that we do is held up to a mirror and scrutinized, like you burn the coffee or you mispark a car. Like, I mean, I can't tell you how anxious I get parking my car and I'm a great driver. Like just, it's one of the things I can do, but if you park a car and you hit the curb, some guy is going to be like, Oh, you know, make a comment. And like, it just feels abusive after like 30 years of driving. And like, these are just accumulations, you know, it's an accumulation of small you know, comments and jokes. And so if you can't get inside Dios in Florida, and trust me, I know from, I'm not supposed to do it, reading the Goodreads, how people are like, oh my God, these women are just like so crazy and so violent. I'm like, no, they're pretty realistic in my mind. Like they are pretty grounded, I think. There's Lobos, who I think kind of stands in for something every woman has suffered at some point in her life, if not every day. I think that there, every woman has felt that sort of, intrinsic anger and rage that comes with experiences that are outside of your control and are just, you know, dumped relentlessly on you. And I think I agree that, you know, yes, obviously there is a violence in Dios and Florida that most of us will never act on. They are not, you know, these criminal masterminds who are out to create havoc or, you know, they're making choices based on the circumstances set in front of them. Yeah. And I just, I'm I'm sort of interested in all of my books, like how close we all walk to like doing something really dangerous or destructive and how far we can get pushed or, I mean, Dios is not pushed. She is just like that. And like, that's one of the things I wanted to write about is like, you know, a woman who is just by nature violent. The question is whether Florida is or whether it was, um, something that happened to her. But I really wanted to make sure that even outside of their acts of violence, there was points of commonality with like the average person. It's definitely something that, as I was reading, you know, we we are often confronted in these days with true crime and different stories. I think in many ways we are desensitized to certain types of violence or prison stories. However, there is sort of this different lens on it when when it's a, a woman, you know, female violence or a female killer. It's, there's so many pieces in there where it sort of makes your skin crawl the way, especially Lobos' partner, the way that he responds to certain things. We can't deal with violent women at all. And if a woman is violent, you know, we think it's a crime against nature or nurture. And it's like, it's really hard for a reader to come to terms with that or to accept it. So like, you know, if a woman commits a crime, it's okay if it's because her husband was abusive. Or it's okay if, you know, she's suffering from postpartum depression or it's okay if, you know, her husband left her or cheated on her or revenge. And these things are all justifiable and they're not just justifiable. They are all the common excuses for violent women in crime fiction, like unless we have a true sociopath and it's really rare. In crime fiction, it's totally fine for having a female killer as long as that was like under the aegis of something that's been done to her by a man. And I think that's super sexist because I think that like, women don't want to can exist independent of things men have done to them we are capable of making choices i mean we cannot do it by them but sometimes we're never going to be 
I have wanted to get in a bar fight in my past. I haven't. I've attempted. It just like felt like I was on the going to be on the losing side of that being like slightly physically weaker. There's always time. There's always time. I know. It's, a, it's literally a bucket list item of mine. And, Mom, I hope you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really wanted to sort of question why violence is gendered in fiction and why we can't, and not just in fiction, but also in the real world and how, you know, we are always excusing or not, excuse me, justifying or you know, explaining away a woman's violence by, you know, external influences that were something a man did to her. So that was sort of the main point of writing this book. Also, I'm glad you mentioned true crime because like another thing that I've been thinking a lot about is, um, you know, I am a true crime person, uh, less so these days because I feel like we've covered so much of it that we're like the late adapter true crime story of like not so interesting stories. But um, I watched that. I was like a Law and Order junkie, Law and Order SVU in particular. I've seen like every episode up until season like thirty or whatever. <laughs> but um, there's so much violence in these shows. There's just so much violence. It's usually off screen. You know, you hear about it. But my book, you see the violence, and I kind of want to people to think about how much violence we consume at a remove. Okay, if you read like a traditional crime novel, and let's say there's a serial killer in it. Um, we don't tend to see those murders, though sometimes we do, and they're always ritualized, and they're very sanitized, or they're really over the top, but they're not visceral. So I just want people to think that when you're reading a book with a body count, those bodies, even though they're not real, or if you're watching true crime, they are real, those bodies didn't die peacefully or beautifully. They died violently and graphically and horrifically. And like, if you're going to watch that, you damn well better be able to read at least one book where, you know, that stuff is laid out for you because, you know, it's not popcorn, it's death and it's violence and it's physical and sexual violence. And like, take a look, you know, about what you're sort of thrilled by, because this is actually it. It really is what I'm writing about and like seeing and it's not pretty. And all the violence in my book, it's not like glamorous killings. It's really kind of dirty and you know real and you know it makes it makes me think about when i'm scrolling through netflix and like oh true crime like no i don't want to watch that because what i'm you know getting excited about is death and like and maybe i shouldn't be yeah there's a scene uh, as i when i started reading there's a scene early on in the book that involves a fork in a cafeteria in the prison and when we got to that point i was like oh okay that's where we're at in this book and that's <laughs> it's funny Every book I write, there's like one thing where people freak out and it's that fork. So like, it's not like giving it away. A woman sticks a fork in another woman's face and kind of twists. And like, I describe it pretty graphically. And then someone gets sort of obsessed with it and sort of recreates it, talks about it again. Uh, in Wonder Valley, one of my previous books, there's a, it takes place in a chicken farm part of it. And they um, slaughter these chickens. And just honestly, the amount of letters I got and like comments, like, I can't believe how graphic that was. I'm like, it's a chicken farm. Yeah. Like, where do you think that chicken comes from? And, you know, in my last book, they killed a lot of hummingbirds, which is now why I have a hummingbird tattoo, because I feel like I got to stop killing birds. And people are like, oh, my God, there's dead hummingbirds. Like, yeah, I was like, there's a lot of worse things that happen to me. Yes. I think it's, it's just that moment where you realize yeah. that this is not going to be a book that sanitizes it. This is not going to be yeah. a book that covers up and says, Oh, and then this happened and you hear about it later through other other people or other things that's going to say, no, this is the this is what I'm going to show. And I think that that's really important, especially in a book that is primarily female characters. I mean, there's a few male characters, but they're really yeah. not doing, you know, a lot of the, the heavy lifting, we would say. And the idea that, you know, there's no 
quote unquote likable character in this book, but I don't think anyone ever needs a likable character. I don't even know what likable is. I just think it's a word that's thrown around or up uh, in relation to female characters so often oh she wasn't likable i couldn't like her but do we have to be able to like who we read about i don't think so i mean i like all of them i think they're totally yeah but i know what you mean there's not an easy character but they're all likable like sure it's wild and like she is full of life and energy and she's on this mission and it's a death mission or death wish and i find it sort of enjoyable and you know if florida's kind of a problem but like no we don't have to like them i don't think we should like them because like it's boring to like people and like I even you know I, I like complicated people and you know I'm always afraid of people who are preternaturally nice like I think people who are really nice are actually secretly mean it's like a, it's a game I play I'm like that person can't be that nice like I don't want to see what happens when she goes home oh I'm from the midwest and I can say that's a, you know that midwest nice covers up a lot so I get a little Definitely. nervous too there you go yeah you start charting the secretly mean people you know you're going to come up with a lot it's like oh it's all it's like all sunshine cookies and rain <laughs> gloves come off like behind closed doors yeah and i think that especially in if you're writing about these sort of female experiences with rage and violence you're going to get people who off the bat are like well i've never met a woman like that i don't know any women like that i mean it's funny like you read a book like the love affairs of nathaniel p by uh, adele waldman or um fleischman is in trouble and like the heart the character the main character is this unlikable guy but no one's like oh god i didn't want to read that they're like i want to read that to see if i want to sleep with him or whatever you know like and see like and i feel like women again this is a perfect example of something that women are being held to task for like men are women are like i like bad boys you know like i like a tough guy don't make yourself trace an emotionally unavailable person it's like all the self-help for women about this like need we seem to have to find like emotionally unavailable men it's like yeah, once I like clicked on one and then my Instagram feed was like flooded yeah. with like self-help things. I was like, whoa, this is crazy. The but, algorithm. Uh, the algorithm got me and I'm out of that one and onto like something else now. But, you know, I feel that like we celebrate, you know, men and women completely differently. And, you know, like unlikable male characters are like the staple of a certain breed of fiction. Like we love them. Like look at a book by Jonathan Franzen. Like tell me those people are likable. They're not. They're really well drawn. And that's fine. But women have or they have to be like super psychotic and weird right it either has to be the biggest femme fatale like that top you know like s somehow still that attractive epitome of the femme fatale like some sort of spy out there doing these things right. or it's has to be the complete opposite something so off the wall and unlit and grotesque right and if they're not likable, they have to be sexy or pretty or doing something that we want to read about. Um, you know, it's like, it's ridiculous. I think my characters are super likable. I like writing them. Yes. <laughs> and I like reading them. I don't want to hang out with them all the time, no. but I think they're quite enjoyable. No, I think people will definitely like reading them. They'll want to sit and see where's, <laughs> what's going to happen next. Because, I mean, following these women around L.A. Yeah, is... Yeah truly an adventure i i've really never been to la oh. and so reading this i mean obviously this is make you not want to go <laughs> well i mean not at this point in 2020 maybe not it seems like you know no one wanted to go anywhere at that point i was able to sort of really though i had never experienced any of these places i knew i could feel exactly what was happening in all those moments and i felt like i was there i mean it is it la is a character in this book along with everything else yeah, I mean, it's a character in a lot of my books. I'm sort of interested in, like, its unknowability, its mutability. People are always writing about the same places in L.A. I find that really interesting. 
how few books go outside of people's Los Angeles comfort zone. It's not intentional. Like Wonder Valley is set in Skid Row and These Women is set in the part of LA I live, which Western, which is kind of not particularly well known um, in fiction. And um, this book, uh, Singer Down, is set actually in the same place as These Women and in Skid Row. So it's a combination of both. I was like, you know, people start saying to me, like, will you write about these places in LA that like no one else writes about? And I thought, well, that can't possibly be true. Turns out it kind of is. You know, there's some older fiction. John Fante uh, wrote, um, you know, Ask the Dust. And he writes about some of the same areas. Some of James Elroy's books pass through where I write about, though they're just uh, crazier. And also set historically. So and Walter Mosley sometimes, but like, they're all historical. Like no one writes about these places now. And I'm just so flabbergasted by that. I mean, because they're really large sections of the city. So um and they're really, you know, you watch the news and Skid Row's on the news all the time. One day someone's going to make that Skid Row TV show. And I'm gonna be like, I told you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from just reading this, it's there's it's so rich and so deep, those areas and the people who live there, whether they are, you know, what they're experiencing in their lives at that time. It, it was very eye opening to sort of move through those spaces in ways that I haven't seen in L.A. before. And yes, we, we hit a, a few of those you know, okay, here's a mansion, here's, you know, right. talking about clubs and whatever, but it's very minimal in the terms of the actual LA that we're seeing and the, the people that are. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to write about a club in LA. Like I've been to one, you know, I've actually really never been to a nightclub in LA. I moved there when I was in my thirties and yeah, it's funny. So maybe that's why I can't write about that part of the city. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that felt very important to this. I mean, I don't think you could pick this story up and necessarily put it in other places. It felt very tied to that geographical place. Yeah, for sure. And especially because it is, you know, the time period is happening during the COVID moment that we were all living. Did you write this? At what point in the pandemic did you start writing? Um, I started writing it in fall of 2020, so about six months in. So And then the pandemic became a bigger and bigger figure in the story as I realized that we were not going to be exiting it anytime soon. And like LA, I don't want to say it had it worse than anywhere else, but I'm going to say it. I mean, it didn't open up. We had three separate lockdowns. We didn't have restaurants. We didn't have anything. And it's really unusual because it's unlike New York, which is quite cloistered and shut like narrow, small, smaller city, tighter quarters. LA is very spread out and we have huge parks and public spaces and all of that was closed. Everything was closed. Uh, beaches were closed. Parks were closed. We don't have outdoor dining until way into the pandemic. I mean, restaurants were closed for like a year. It was really scary for a really long time. And the four days during which this book is set, the George Floyd protests, it was like a war zone had come to the pandemic. People were like evacuating their houses in the hills and rich people in Bel Air because they thought they're going to get looted and rioted, which don't get me started. I have friends who did it and I would like horrified. Perhaps we are not friends anymore. There was helicopters overhead and the National Guard rolling through. And it just felt surreal in this like empty, vacant city where everyone was supposedly sheltering in place or sheltering at home to have this sort of military presence. It was scary. I'm going to, it was just scary because I think that was worse than anything that was going to happen in terms of a protest, you know. It definitely reminded me so viscerally of those early months where it was so alien and foreign and i mean even talking about like masks blowing down the street and experiencing just that emptiness i mean the time here in new york just going out into manhattan and 
every street was empty. Yeah. Just like having experiences, and I'm sure there's so many places in LA that the same that are normally full to the brim of people doing, you know, living their lives and just seeing these empty spaces. Especially in LA, where we have parking lots and stuff, because you know, strip malls where there is so much space, and that's sort of what I was playing with in the opening of the book, where they're in um, Arizona, which is much more suburban or exurban, and it's just cleaned out. Like it is, you know, New York empty, but you know. When you see the emptiness of a entire shopping mall parking lot with not a single car or, you know, just these every strip mall on the street, because L.A. is a strip mall culture, just completely empty. You, it's just so much more, I thought, visually striking, just the amount of emptiness, the freeways being empty. You know, it was really, really shocking. And then sort of pairing that in the way you do in this novel with the still inhabited areas of people experiencing homelessness and having that sort of play interplay of yes there are these great sprawling empty spaces but there are also still people where there have always been people who have nowhere else to go yes yeah i mean the homeless um i work in skid row i've taught there for 12 years and there was an explosion of undomiciled living um during the pandemic and it just became it had started right before, and it sort of changed a lot now. They, I don't know exactly how I should. Um, there were just these encampments. The freeways were just like the city within a city. Along the embankments of the freeway, there were just campsites and sort of communities, little villages. Um, and I walked through them before the pandemic and after, during. I had started before, so I don't want to credit the pandemic. But every by the end, of the middle of the pandemic, every highway overpass, underpass was a shelter everything had been converted into a place to live. It was shocking to see this sort of city layered over the city that you know. Yeah, that and those moments, I mean, that's sort of what we go to this fiction for, this pandemic fiction, just like we've go to fiction for other major historical events, because we all experience the same thing, but something different. And to sort of be able to understand what was happening in another place in that same time is going to be very eye-opening. And I think, yes, I I understand why people would say certain things like, oh, I don't want to read about that. But I think over the next few years, we're going to see just so many different accounts of of this same thing all over. Yeah, I think, you know, it just seems silly not to address something that happened. And there's going to be something for everybody within the pandemic. We're going to get domestic suspense, people locked safer at home, locked inside. We're going to get like, we're going to get a lot of stuff. Yes. But I think, I mean, this book is so much more than a pandemic novel. I don't want to sell it as this is a pandemic novel because it's really a story of women and what they experience. And did you feel like you got it? Like you felt like you were able to say what you wanted to say through these women as you wrote? Oh, sure. Um, Definitely. They were sort of, you know, I feel kind of bad for creating the characters as to prove a point about the way we read about violence or the way we read it, not fiction and nonfiction, or even in the news, women who are violent, they started as an experiment, a thought experiment, but then they became real to me and they became real and taking them from, you know, what would happen if I made something like No Country for Old Men or Blood Meridian to very violent books with sort of almost cartoonish violence in them um, and made the perpetrators of that violence women. And then I realized, well, I need to make them real people. And so, yeah, I think I, for sure, I think it comes across um, and it, it feels very validating and I I expect a lot of blowback and pushback, and I'm totally fine with that because I think when that happens, I've proved my point because this is not unreasonable and it's not unrealistic. And women do do this. They don't do it all the time. They do it way less than men. But of course, 
everything happens in the world. There's one of everything. Um, there's more than one violent woman out there for sure. And so when someone says, this is awful, I can't take it, it's too violent, it's too unrealistic, I know I've done a really good job because that was the point. And there are going to be so many readers who are clamoring for that exact feeling because they're looking for that in books. Especially, yeah. I know so many young women, you see it on TikTok all the time, that's you know where everyone's talking about books these days. Yeah. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking for those experiences that go beyond my, hand into a, my book into the hand of those book talkers, let me know. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I always try to wrap, like towards the end, I want to wrap up with a sure. couple of things. Sure. Number one, my favorite question to ask people are, who are the literary influences of Ivy Pakoda? Who makes you your reader, your writer, all that? Um, I should be able to answer this pretty clearly. Um, obviously, Cormac McCarthy, um, this book is really influenced by him and his uh, novels that I've mentioned. Um, not just the two I mentioned, but also Child of God which is a totally deranged, almost novella. Dennis Johnson um, is a huge influence on me. I love Angels. Um, in fact, I have a quote from both Dennis Johnson and Cormac McCarthy to start this book. Angels is just an amazing book. Um, it's his first novel. And of course, everyone loves Jesus' son. Jonathan Lethem, who's a dear friend, and also just what I love about him is he refuses to be confined by any genre. He could have, you know, had a very traditional career, but he is always trying something new. Susan Strait, who's also a good friend of mine, she wrote a book called Mecca that I feel I will never be worthy of writing something half as good. And I think about it all the time. A woman that Jonathan actually introduced me to, not physically, her work uh, named Robin McLean. Uh, she uh, wrote a book called Pity the Beast. That's okay. That's enough. <laughs> And my last question, my, fa my one of my favorites, but I get very varied responses to it, is um, what's next for you? Are you working on anything new that you want to talk no, about? No, I had a really rough year last year waiting for this book to come out. Nothing to do with that, just some personal stuff. I didn't really feel up to writing fiction. I have two book projects on tap. I'm not sure which one I'm going to write. Well, I'm definitely going to write both of them. One's a novella, a horror novella, um, and that's more of um, a fun project. And then I want to write one more Los Angeles novel because I thought that this was going to be my last Los Angeles novel, but I just didn't get where I wanted to go with my issues with the city. Like, I just have this idea that living in Los Angeles is such a crime against the environment, and we are all living on the brink of disaster, and I just want to write about that. Um, so, yeah, one more. All right. That sounds great, actually. That sounds, I, I'm excited for that book when that comes out. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for being thank with you. us here today to talk yeah, about pleasure. and sing her down is out now. I can't wait for everyone to get their hands on it and to meet these off the wall women. Thank you so much for being with us today, Ivy. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes and Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.